Well, uh, after watching uh, Frank McCourt and W.S. Mer Merlin, I thought that the best way to frame this talk would be to start with a poem from Seamus Haney, and I'll begin and end with that. Uh, it's called The Cure at Troy. Human beings suffer, they torture one another, they get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted or endured. The innocent and the gallows beat on their bars together. A hunger striker's father stands in the graveyard dumb. The police widow in veils faints at the funeral home. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the long-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Uh, that is the uh, sound and feeling of an exoneration, a once-in-a-lifetime tidal wave of justice where hope and history rhyme. Uh, there have been 219 of these post-conviction DNA exonerations since 1989, and actually 155 in the last eight years. Uh, we now have 45 uh, projects in our Innocence Network in the United States and six in foreign countries. Uh, for those of us who are privileged to do this work, I can tell you that fighting for the poor, for the downtrodden, for the oppressed uh, is a reward in itself. Uh, it is a exquisite source of passion, energy, uh, and excitement. Uh, so you can't, it never gets old. Uh, you can't ask for anything better than that. Uh, I started as a public defender in the South Bronx. Uh, and then became a law professor, which really gave me the social space to almost do anything I wanted um, and take an interdisciplinary approach uh, to the criminal justice system and uh, the whole issue of social justice. Uh, then there was this great invention of uh, DNA testing. And uh, my colleague Peter Neufeld and I really were lucky enough to try to prove somebody innocent in 1987-88. Uh, and get involved with uh, people in the genetics community, and we immediately, truthfully, understood the importance of this. But I'd like to put it in a certain kind of perspective. Uh, only 10% of serious felony cases have any biological evidence in it that you can use to determine guilt or innocence. Uh, so what about the other 90% of the cases? Uh, these DNA exonerations are really just a learning moment for uh, those of us who work in the criminal justice system. Because if we can get at the root of the causes of wrongful convictions, um, and then we can prevent them. Uh, the, this has become uh, uh, a civil rights movement, uh, a, an opportunity to reform the criminal justice system that we haven't had uh, in this country really since the 60s. And the guiding political force here is everybody understands this. When an innocent person is convicted, the person who really committed the crime is out there committing more crimes. So if, you know, God forbid, we sentence somebody to a long prison term or even to ex execute them, uh, it's really important to find who did it, right? So we really know a lot about the causes of wrongful convictions. It's mistaken uh, eyewitness identification, false confessions, uh, junk or unreliable forensic science. I mean, false eyewitness identification, 70% of the cases. Uh, junk or unreliable forensic science, 65% of the cases. Jailhouse snitches, 
police or prosecutorial misconducts, bad defense lawyers, nothing guarantees the conviction of an innocent more than a lawyer that is incompetent or not up to the job, and of course, the original sin of this country, the intractable problem of race. Well, for a lot of these, we really do, do know the solutions. Uh, 30 years of fantastic psychological research in the area of eyewitness identification have given rise to a set of best practices uh, that police uh, are now beginning to adopt. And in our state legislatures and our courts, people are beginning to recognize we can reduce the number of misidentifications without reducing the number of correct identifications. All we have to do is videotape interrogations. And we are going to uh, improve the criminal justice system. There are now 350 jurisdictions in this country that have adopted that, and law enforcement, at first reluctant, now loves it. The biggest challenge, and as I meet among all of you, there are so many uh, terrific young scientists and doctors uh, in this room, uh, maybe the biggest and best challenge we face has to do with forensic science itself. Uh, because what's really happened here is this fantastic technology that was used for research and medical purposes, DNA testing, has now been transferred to the forensic arena. And what it has exposed is that so much of the other things that we were using in forensic science wasn't science at all. Uh, whether it was microscopic hair comparison, bite marks, handwriting, ballistics, tool marks, fibers, or even, frankly, uh, some problems that we have in fingerprints. Um, really, when you have a small latent print left at a crime scene, you're trying to figure out how many points of identity make it a match or, or an exclusion, when we really don't have as good an answer to that as we should. Um, and we have an opportunity now, and there's going to be a report coming out uh, in December, January, we hope, from the National Academy of Sciences that really is going to tackle this issue in a fund fundamental way. Uh, we have an opportunity in this country, uh, finally, to put some federal resources into basic research uh, in the forensic science area, uh, create a kind of NIH for forensic science, an opportunity to create a sort of FDA for some of these kits or uh, forensic assays that we use to make reliability assessments the way the FDA does it for drugs, uh, uh, and finally, uh, a professionalize the culture of forensic science with something like the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Act for forensic science, where we get accreditation of laboratories, certification of people in the laboratories so that we can really deliver forensic science services in a way that enhance the capability of law enforcement, not just to protect the innocent, but identify who really committed the crime. Uh, so this is actually an enormously exciting time uh, to be involved in this field. Uh, you know, the technology is great, uh, but of course, uh, correcting the fundamental inequities uh, in this system uh, in terms of the problems of race, class, um, uh, and uh, provision of services to the poor is essential. I got into this uh, as a public defender in the South Bronx. Uh, I became a law professor by accident because they were starting this law school in New York and somebody said, you know, this guy went to all the right schools, he'd be pretty interested, why don't you ask him? Um, and really have had the privilege of uh, working with uh, collaborators uh, that have taught so much. If you just uh, keep your mind open, I knew nothing uh, about science. Uh, now I've been educated by some of the best geneticists in the world just because there was a task at hand to do justice. 
Um, and I was the guy that, uh, uh, with my colleague Peter Neufeld, was around in order to uh, get that opportunity uh, to learn about this, or in the area of neuroscience now, uh, which is so extraordinary uh, and so controversial in areas like uh, what they call shaken impact baby syndrome. Uh, I tried a case of the, the uh, so-called nanny Louise Woodward in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and got to learn a lot about the brain uh, uh, from some of those leading experts. And I can tell you, even in an area uh, that is as complex um, as what they're calling shaken impact baby syndrome. Uh, we, you, you, you bring a child to the hospital with a subdural hematoma, a skull fracture, bilateral retinal hemorrhages, and you begin to ask questions, well, what happened here? And you will get a different answer from a medical examiner, a different answer from a pediatrician, a different answer from a neurologist, a different answer from uh, uh, a, a physicist, and if you ask that question in Canada, you get one answer. If you ask that question in the United Kingdom, you get an answer, and you uh, ask that question in the United States, you get a completely different answer from all the different disciplines. Uh, so I really think that there's a need in this country uh, to bring together the legal community and the scientific community to solve a lot of these problems in the criminal justice system. Uh, it's a very, very exciting time. I don't think that we've ever had an opportunity to change things uh, in, in this system the way we do today. Uh, it's only 43 years, think about it, uh, since a person who was poor, charged with a felony, got a right to a lawyer in the United States. So just think about what those trials were like uh, before the Gideon decision, before people really had a right to a lawyer. And I have to tell you, we haven't fulfilled that obligation. We don't provide sufficient uh, resources either to our prosecutors or certainly to our public defenders in this country to make this adversarial system work. It's a great, great system, uh, but it really has to have the resources to work. Uh, but now we really do have that opportunity um, in a way we never have before. Because when uh, National Academy of Sciences were holding these hearings on forensic science, uh, it was fascinating because people came uh, forward from the federal government in Homeland Security. And they were saying, you know, we really need to get these things right. Not just to protect the innocent, to identify the guilty in the criminal justice system, but to protect the homeland. Uh, so I think that this is really an opportunity uh, for a serious movement that we've never had before. Uh, and I feel it. Look, I'm, I almost feel, looking at the arc of these things, that I'm almost a stereotype, all right? I mean, in 1968, I was 19 years old. I went to campaign for Eugene McCarthy, then Robert Kennedy. I was in Indiana. I went to the Democratic Convention in 1968. At the age of 19, I thought we were really going to change the world you know, a product of the civil rights movement, uh, somebody that was involved in the anti-war movement but always respected those who went to fight uh, in that war uh, enormously. Uh, and then, you know, we really thought everything was gonna change and you know what? We've had some problems since then. A lot of the, the seeds of the, those problems were probably inherent in the movement. After all, I did go to Woodstock, I actually did. Um, <laughs> so in some ways that feels stereotypical. Uh, in other ways, I have to tell you, I feel uh, these big challenges that we have in front of us, whether it's in the healthcare system, the crisis in energy, um, uh, uh, or in the, uh, uh, all our social problems now are so big 
and the time is so ripe for fundamental change that you can just feel it. So let me end by reading the rest of this poem, uh, The Cure of Troy, uh, because uh, just in talking with all of you uh, in so many different fields uh, at this stage of your career, uh, I just get a sense from you, no matter whether you're doctors, lawyers, uh, in public policy, at Oxford, at Harvard, at the Kennedy School, whatever you're doing, I, I do sense this spirit among you. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call the miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing double take of feeling. If there's a fire on the mountain or lightning and storm and a God speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and birth cry of new life at its term. Thank you.